Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Thursday morning, the 31st of March. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reid on LMFM. The Russian bombardment of Ukraine continues despite the Russian commitment to scale down its offensive. From the north, from the east and the south, and they attacked us on the soil, um, in the air and from the sea. Russian missiles and air bombs are hitting our cities and civilian infrastructure on a daily basis every night. For the Russian forces, there are no prohibited targets. They attack everything. This is the president of Ukraine speaking through an interpreter to the Norwegian parliament yesterday. From hospitals to airports, starting from food warehouses to housing blocks. And the losses are colossal. Uh, dozens of thousands of houses destroyed, uh, dozens of thousands of villages and municipalities destroyed, millions of people left without shelter. The convoys, armored convoys of Russian uh, forces are not reducing. Volodymyr Zelensky told politicians in Norway about the war on Ukraine and also about life for people living in Russia. The Russian state, as it is now, uh, the freedom of people, of freedom of human, uh, of of human rights, doesn't mean any anything. They neglect universally acknowledged human rights. Not only do not they have the safety for the minorities, they can be killed and they are being killed. And I'm sure that you know about that. And destroying. Uh, Democracies is their multi-year policy. Vladimir Zelensky, the group Amnesty, echoes that particular sentiment, saying that the Russian authorities have launched a witch hunt by effectively weaponizing the country's criminal justice system to prosecute anti-war protesters. Let's speak to Colm O'Gorman, who's the executive director of Amnesty International Ireland. Good morning to you, Colm, and thank you indeed for joining us. Uh, you do not speak out of line in terms of this war, it seems, in Russia at the moment. Yeah, good morning, Michael. Thanks for having me on again. I mean, it's it's chilling to see what's happening in Russia. I mean, the crackdown on civil society in Russia has been going on now for well over a decade at this stage, but it's really ramped up since the illegal invasion of Ukraine. Um, we know that in the first two weeks of the war, 
uh, over 13,000 people were arrested in Russia for simply protesting against that war. And a month on now, we know that at least 60 criminal cases have been initiated against people who took part in peaceful protests against the war or who criticised the Russian authorities. Um, And they're being investigated under 14 separate articles of the Russian Criminal Code. So they're weaponising the Criminal Code to target and attack um, and detain anybody who voices criticism of of either the authorities, but also who who protests peacefully against the war. We know that 46 people are are, are facing criminal charges. And, And the kinds of uh, crimes they've been, the so-called crimes that they've been charged with, that would include insulting government officials, libel, inciting extremist activities, inciting mass riots, hatred and fraud, the desecration of burial sites. I mean, just the most ridiculous charges um, that are, are used uh, um, to harass, detain and then imprison, uh, um, arbitrarily detain people who have only either criticised the regime are taken part in in peaceful protests. Okay, it's not a, a war. Uh, this is the Russian contention, isn't it? And uh, anybody who describes it as a, a war is discrediting the armed forces uh, who are on a military operation in Ukraine. Yeah, you can't. You can't. Nobody in Russia can say that this is a war, and nobody can call for peace. And if they do, they'll have. Uh, discredited the Russian armed forces, which is a, a new law that was introduced um, in in early March, so early this month. I mean, under that new law, um, people face up to 10 years in prison or 15 years if the comments that they make, which criticise, the, the which name the fact that this is a war or which call for peace, if that's called what are called grave consequences under the law. And then uh, um, later on in March, in uh, on the 22nd of March, just in, in, re- in the recent week, that law was expanded to criminalise the sharing of what they call fake news about any mm. activities of Russia, Russian government officials abroad. And we saw the, the first person then um, charged with, uh, under this legislation, that was on the 16th of March, where a food blogger who was about 850,000 Instagram followers was charged with knowing with sharing knowingly false information about the use of Russian armed forces to destroy cities and the civilian populations of Ukraine, including children, end quote. Um, and, and that's simply because... And she was calling out some of the impacts of the illegal invasion of Ukraine and, and some of the, 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 the actions that are grave breaches of law themselves of the Russian authorities. So she was the first person arrested and charged. But we've seen a significant number of people charged since then, including a number of journalists who have, for instance, highlighted the attack against the maternity hospital in, in, in Mariupol, which most people, of course, know about mm-hmm. that happened on the, on, the 9th, on the 9th of March or in early March. Um, and, and so we're seeing journalists, we're seeing ordinary people, uh, we're seeing food bloggers, anybody who dares challenge the, the, the dogma, the, the, the lies of the state, that this is anything other than a legal invasion. Anybody who calls out the actions of the Russian authorities who are bombing civilians, targeting civilians uh, in Ukraine, if they simply call for peace, they've committed an offence that could lead them fa- could lead to them facing up to 15 years in prison. Okay, maybe it's not that much of a, a surprise in that information has always been an important tool, if not an important weapon of war. There's always been war propaganda, and uh, I'm sure for as long as the earth exists and that time frame is in question at the moment uh, there will always be war propaganda as long as there's wars I mean if you go back to the big wars uh, and the film 
rails. Uh, you could say the Americans uh, lost the Vietnam War in part because of the TV coverage bringing back the uh, American bodies in coffins. Uh, the Gulf War brought satellite TV into its own and they're saying that this particular war uh, is... Uh, giving social media a platform that brings it into people's rooms who are so far away that they really wouldn't have a a feel for what's going on otherwise. Uh, And this is an information war that's taking place in Russia. Are they winning that information war? What do people in Russia believe is happening in Ukraine? Well, it's not an information war that's taking place in Russia because Russian authorities and the Kremlin have shut down people's access to information. Mm. But that's what I mean. Are they winning? The objective of that is what people believe, I I imagine. So so are they successful? Thus far, they they seem to have been particularly successful because when you think about the fact that any independent media outlet now in Russia has effectively been closed down over the last month, They've banned most social media platforms. People don't have any access to information. So they're dependent upon contacts or information that comes from outside of the country. And as you can see, any, any attempt of, uh, to share that information internally within the country then results in this extraordinary crackdown using uh, the criminal code in this way and introducing these ludicrous laws which in of themselves are, are, are clearly illegal under, under international law. So, yes, I mean, an authoritarian government mm. is cracking down on freedom of expression, freedom of assembly, um, um, a whole range of, of fundamental human rights. Um, and, uh, yeah, that means that they're winning the information war right now in Russia. Um, I don't think that's sustainable in the longer term. But mm. obviously the concern that we have as a human rights organisation right now is for the human rights of people in Russia uh, um, who are being denied access to information, who are being denied the right to freedom of assembly, to freedom of expression. And it's a gravely worrying situation in the Russian context. Now, of course, you know, what's happening in Ukraine is, is, is just uh, horrific uh, um, um, as well. Um, um, and uh, that's why the, the Russian authorities are cracking down so hard. I mean, if, if, if Russian people understood what was happening in Ukraine, it's very difficult to imagine that they would anyway support their government. But mm. they don't. Most people believe and the, the, the nonsense that's been churned out 24 hours a day on, on state media, and that is that this is a war to denazify Ukraine, um, and it's to, to, uh, to protect and to rescue Russian speakers in eastern Ukraine from an oppressive regime, despite the fact that it's exactly those Russian speakers in Ukraine who might have had some sympathy to a narrative around uh, greater autonomy and independence from Kiev, who are now uh, um, strongly objecting to the occupation of their cities, of their homes, of their villages and of their towns by Russian forces. So when people turn on their TVs in Moscow or wherever, they're believing that this is a human rights mission that uh, the Russians have engaged in to rid the Ukraine of a Nazi fascist-led government. Well, you'd be surprised to hear that the Putin doesn't generally use the term human rights as something that's positive or something that should be upheld. And um, but no, absolutely, they're saying that they are they're, they've invaded Ukraine to denazify the country and demilitarize the country because uh, of the persecution of people in eastern Ukraine, but also because Ukraine poses some sort of threat to Russia, which is utter utter nonsense. And I think most people understand that. But that is what people are being fed 20, 24 hours a day now uh, in Russian uh, through the Russian state-sponsored mm. media. Absolutely. Yeah.
and hundreds of thousands of people have left Russia, many of them journalists who want to report on the reality of the situation. We saw one very brave journalist on television, mm-hmm. uh, Marina of Sanikova, uh, stand behind a presenter with a cardboard placard saying that uh, war is wrong and stop the war and uh, made her own social media video. Do we know anything uh, of what happened to her apart from that court case that was reported on? Yeah, so apart from the, the case that you've just referenced, it was reported on. So she was detained. She was brought to court. We're not clear exactly what's happening for her at the moment. But we know that a, a significant number of people who have been arrested have either had to flee the country now because they're worried about what would follow on from this, or indeed uh, um, they've just gone into hiding, uh, hiding inside Russia. And lots of people are leaving Russia. Now, we've heard Putin say that that's fine. Russia will be a pure, better state as a result of these traitors leaving the country. Um, but I mean, again, that says an awful lot about about the, the Putin's mindset. Mm. And it's not journalists, uh, just journalists, uh, as you say. Uh, it's people reporting on social media uh, or social media journalists, if, if you like. Uh, but anybody who voices opposition or calls into question uh, the Russian offensive or describes it in those terms uh, is being brought to book. And this goes down as far as people writing graffiti on walls. Yeah, I mean, we've seen examples of people being arrested. I mean, there's a street artist, Ina Cherny, who was, who was detained for putting up stickers that said Gruz 200, which is the official military code for casualties. And he was arrested for public intoxication and charged with vandalism. And we saw an, another person arrested because they had written war as a requiem for common sense on a wall. Uh, uh, others, uh, another person arrested for, for painting the Ukrainian flag on a World War II howitzer, which was in a, an open-air museum. So these kinds of peaceful uh, protests uh, using street art or graffiti, yes, we're seeing people arrested and detained as a result of that as well. And the issue is just the kind of penalties that are being used, particularly for any kind of political expression or for any kind of opposition um, to the Russian government or to the invasion of Ukraine. These are extreme, entirely disproportionate re- responses to something like somebody uh, putting up a piece of graffiti as an act of protest. It's 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 deeply, deeply concerning. Okay. And we have seen, yeah. as you said yourself, I mean, yes, we've seen journalists and others leave, but I mean, so many human rights defenders now have had to flee um, Russia as well because as part of this crackdown, it's simply impossible for them to continue the work. I mean, Amnesty, for instance, early on in March, came out publicly and said that the invasion was uh, in itself illegal and was a crime under international law. And that meant that any Amnesty staff were in Russia had to leave Russia because they now faced and could have faced up to 15 years in prison because we had simply named the fact that Russia was breaching international law by carrying out this illegal illegal invasion of its neighbouring country. And Amnesty saying this week that this is a repetition of what happened in Syria. Yeah, I mean, the tactics that we're seeing um, Russia adopt are exactly the same tactics that we research and evidenced in Syria. Blanket bombing of civilian populations, the destructions of towns, just obliterating towns and villages, just bombing them into absolute submission so that then they could be uh, um, taken over and controlled. It doesn't seem to be um, working in the same way in, in, in parts of Ukraine because of the kind of opposition that they're facing. But if you if you look at what's happening in Mariupol, which it now looks like about half of that city is now under Russian control, it's, mm. it's a carbon copy of exactly what they did um, in Syria. So terrorising populations, bombing hospitals, bombing civilian in- infrastructures, clearly targeting civilians. This is a, a Russian military tactic. It's not an accident. It's a direct, It's an absolute tactic that Russia uh, um, has employed now for, for, for decades, and we saw exactly that in Syria. There, there was a, a small window of hope following uh, the peace talks on Tuesday. I think that window was closed, does it? 
Yeah, there was a suggestion that, that Russia were going to withdraw from Kiev and from some, some, some other um, key population centres. Now, the Ukrainians pointed out very quickly that they've offered to withdraw from places where they're being beaten back. Um, it, Russia said it was going to focus its efforts uh, in, the Dost, on, in the Donbass region in, in eastern Ukraine in the so-called uh, disputed now what they've proclaimed as independent republics. Um, but we have seen overnight, uh, again, shelling from Russian artillery uh, um, in some of the suburbs of Ukraine. So again, we saw this again in Syria. Russia uh, talked about or agreed to ceasefires. And really those ceasefires were just opportunities for it to regroup, to refuel and to resupply and then to reorganize and, and restart their mm. attacks. Okay. And the concern is that's exactly what they're doing in Ukraine. Which is, I'm sure, completely at odds with everything that Amnesty would like to see, which is uh, peace. Uh, can uh, people support Amnesty in trying to bring about peace? Yeah, I mean, we'd love people go on to amnesty.ie and join uh, any of our Ukrainian actions, support our Ukrainian appeal. Um, absolutely. Uh, uh, um, we'd, we'd really appreciate people's support for that. If they go to amnesty.ie, they'll see a myriad of ways in which they can support our efforts to both campaign to protect civilians in Ukraine, but also critically to continue to collect evidence that we will use to ensure that those who are committing these incredible violations, these extraordinary violations of international law, are ultimately held to account. Because that's one of the things we have to end. I mean, the, the impunity that we've seen uh, for, for regimes across the world, many regimes, I mean, we saw the same in the, in the context of you know, America's adventures in the Middle East, where war crimes were committed. Mm-hmm. The lack of follow-through and accountability for these crimes that, that tolerance of these crimes, the granting of impunity to people because they're deemed to be too powerful or too important to be held accountable, that has to end and, and, and that must start soon. So we're gathering the evidence now that's part of the critical work that we're doing. We've had people in the east of the country over the last number of days gathering more evidence of violations and atrocities there that we'll be revealing over the next couple of days. That's, that's part of the work that we're doing in Ukraine at the moment. Okay, very important work at that. Colm, thank you indeed for joining us on the programme today. Colm O'Gorman, Executive Director of Amnesty International Ireland. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Well, no doubt uh, the Minister for Agriculture will hear a lot about uh, the crisis uh, that uh, pig farmers are facing when he visits olive pork today and uh, perhaps uh, we'll talk to Charlie McConnellogue about uh, that crisis in a moment. Uh, the Minister is on the line. Good morning to you and thank you indeed uh, for joining us. Uh, you're in County Louth today. Olive Pork is not the only place you'll be visiting. Maybe you'd like to uh, highlight uh, where you will be seen and people can meet you today if you like. Yeah, no, uh, thanks Michael and good to join with your show this morning. So no, listen, looking forward to being in Louth today. I'm uh, going around the country as part of uh, an engagement with, with uh, the rural um, uh, sector and uh, under the auspices and uh, putting forward the very clear message in terms of the actual work that the government is doing to back rural Ireland and as part of that will be in, in live today uh, and looking forward to joining uh, Senator Aaron McGreehan um, for a number of engagements and also working closely as well with uh, Fairs Dow TD and uh, Senator John McGahan uh, as government representatives in the county. So I'll be visiting the first step I'll, uh, and first visit I'll have uh, Michael will, as you say, be with Olive Port and um, the Mary family and I'll also be visiting Dundalk Bay Seafoods and, and the Lynch family there. And afterwards then was, I'll be visiting Much Grange Milk um, and, uh, in, in, in Greenower. And after that, Cooley Oysters and the Ferguson family. Okay. So um, it's, it's obviously a strong representation of the agriculture sector and really important as well, the aquaculture uh, sector and, and fisheries is, is important in as well, of course, in, in Clarehead. So um, uh, looking forward to the engagement uh, to 
to assess and the, the challenges that people face, obviously, given coming mm. from the Ukrainian uh, invasion, um, mm. there's real challenges there. Yeah. In agricultural it's pressure on top of pressure. There's uh, no doubt about that, and I think that's that, yeah. recognised by everybody. Minister, do you accept that 30% of pig farmers uh, face uh, going out of business? I, I think it's, it's a really challenging situation facing the, the pork sector at the moment. But um, do you accept that statistic of 30% may be out of business? No, well, I want to work with the sector to ensure that we can support farmers through this time. I, I don't want to see that, but I know that the, with the pressure that's there at the moment, um, farmers are uh, questioning whether they can continue to survive, and I'm very much aware of that. Um, I met with the IFA um, uh, National Leadership and the Pig Committee um, uh, on Tuesday mm-hmm. uh, and late, in, late into the night um, uh, in the department. I've been engaged very closely with them over the last period of time. I've mm-hmm. also delivered a package already um, of 7 million euros to support the mm. sector, which, which, which delivers 20,000 euros per farm um, to, support, to support farmers. But uh, that, was just, that was delivered just in advance of the Ukrainian invasion. Um, but without further assistance, you accept that there's the prospect that 30% should have to stop farming? I, I, I think that there's undoubtedly a, a real challenge there for many farmers in terms of being able to continue with the pressure that's there at the moment. And, uh, so I am it's, not, it's not overstating the scale of the crisis to say that it could be that bad? No, the, the, well, the bottom line is that every, every pig that is leaving a farm uh, at the moment is losing money and losing significant money mm. um, in the range of maybe up to 50, around €50 Euro potentially per pig. So it's, it's massively, and obviously that is not sustainable for, for any business. Mm. Um, it's really important that we do see the prices, um, the, the, the price increases that have happened in the European market over the last uh, two or three weeks, that we see that reflected domestically. That's really important. Um, but, but, but undoubtedly, given the challenge, and particularly mm. um, the pork sector, grain is a massive and the biggest part of their, their cost inputs. Do you think the Taoiseach um, undermined the crisis, Minister? Do you think the Taoiseach undermined the crisis? Do you think he was sneering at pig farmers when he was talking about eggs and rashers? Oh, no, no way, Michael. No way. The Taoiseach is, is massively aware of the, the pressure that's on the, the, the pork and poultry sector in particular. Um, uh, pork most acutely, but, 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 but poultry is... Is, is well, when the, when the protest at the Dáil was raised with him, uh, that's uh, what he started talking about. Uh, let's hear actually a, a little bit uh, from Michal Martin. I actually said we should have the rasher with the poached egg, or the poached egg with the rasher. That, that, I mean, I wasn't joking, I'm serious. I, I believe in a good rasher for breakfast. Uh, and um, But what I'd say to you is this, that um, the, 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 the Minister for Agriculture is very alive to the issue. We've already allocated funding. And that funding is seven million, uh, as you said, uh, Minister. Uh, was that appropriate? Uh, I'm a bit disappointed that you took that clip there, now, Michael, because I mean, the teacher has said many things over the last number of days, um, at addressing the situation, the pressures there in the poultry and pig sector, and he is absolutely. Um, serious about the fact that we do need to support them through this. I was well, I, I'd have thought that pig farmers were I disappointed was, that the Taoiseach was, said that in response to was, ha- what he would do I- in response to the protest that was taking place no, outside. Sir, well, listen, I mean, you didn't, and, and I, 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 that's the first I've heard that, but you didn't play the piece that was before that. So, uh, obviously, the context around the response he was making there, uh, from what I heard there, he was responding to something that had been said by somebody previous to him. I know I was sitting in the chamber. It was, it was Matty McGrath who said, uh, okay. is he interested in anything other than his rashers for his yeah. breakfast? And that's so why he came go. back that's, with that. That's, that's, that's I mean, here a little bit more to put it into context. Here's more, yeah, of, Michael, here's more of Michael Martin. To the big meat industry, we wanted to, just as we did in relation to COVID-19 and helped an awful lot of enterprises survive by investing in those enterprises, 
we also want to keep a very viable industry, which is the pig meat industry, intact and viable. Right, and that's what he said. And we played that yeah. uh, and more of that clip yesterday to Tim Cullinan of the IFA, which is why we didn't want to repeat it this morning, but I did yeah, want to put no, the point to you, Mr. But the Taoiseach said he wants to keep the, 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 the industry viable. Can you do that with 7 million when the industry says it needs 100 million? Well, so, so what the industry is asking for, uh, to be clear, is $100 million of government funding up front, which, uh, $50 million of which would be paid back over a 14-year period by, through a statutory levy. So it's a massive, massive ask. Uh, it, would, it would equate to €400,000, um, just over €400,000 per pig farm. Um, so, I mean, that's a massive ask of the government. But, but having said that, th- there's no doubt whatsoever on the government side to say, I've been on, on this issue now for... Mm. For, for a number of months and have already delivered a package of support which was welcomed by the sector at the time um, to, to deliver support to them to address what was, was, what was a very a significant down cycle in what is a cyclical sector um, uh, where there's ups and downs. But what we have at the moment and what has happened since I delivered that package was the Ukrainian invasion by Russia. And that has, as we know, across all aspects of life added mm much, much more difficulty to everybody's life, but particularly um, those sectors that are dependent on grain as their main input because it has led to very significant increases. So that's why I have been engaging with the sector. There's been very intensive engagement. My team here in the department have been very closely assessing the proposals that have come forward. And as the Taoiseach said there, we want, this is a really sustainable sector. It's a really important sector. We want to see it continuing into the future. We know the pressure that they're under at the moment and we are working with the sector to see how we can support them through that and what appropriate steps we can take to do that. Are you open to funding by way of a loan, which is what the farmers are asking for, uh, and to co-funding that? Yeah, so listen, we're, we're looking at all the options. I suppose the bottom line is we know that the sector, we need to work with the sector to make sure that it is it sustains itself and that it is there for the future and that this um, this perfect storm as such that is facing at the moment does not see farmers who otherwise would have and have, have a tremendous livelihood and do a tremendous service in terms of producing food and 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 supporting the national economy that we do not see farmers um, going out of business as a result of the situation at the moment. So we're conscious of the pressure that's there, Michael, and we're assessing how we can work with the sector and support the sector and those that need it to come through this. Okay, Minister, I'm sure uh, plenty of people will meet with you today and have lots to talk to you about under the uh, current climate. And thank you indeed uh, for taking some time thank to you. be with us uh, ahead of uh, your visit in County Louth today. The Minister for Agriculture, Charlie McConnell-Oak. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, the Irish Council for Civil Liberties is looking for three amendments uh, to the Constitution. Let's uh, speak to Diren Ansborough, who is the Head of Legal and Policy with the Irish Council for Civil Liberties. Good morning to you, Diren. Thanks for joining us on the programme this morning. These are amendments you hope would bring about gender equality. What is it you would like to see happen? Good morning, Michael. Yes, we're calling for uh, a referendum to amend three different articles uh, to ensure that we uh, that our constitution is fit for, for purpose in modern Ireland and reflects gender equality and also removes obstacles um, that are currently in the constitution to gender equality. Um, the, three, the three articles we're asking to be amended is the equality article, which currently doesn't refer to gender equality or non-discrimination. So we need to get uh, non-discrimination into our constitution. We need to um, remove the article 
that essentially places women in the home or recognises work of women in the home and make that a, a non-gendered article so that people of all genders uh, are, are recognised uh, in our constitution who do care work. Um, and this is about ensuring that carers uh, across society can be recognised for, 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 for the work that they do. Um, and uh, we also need to amend the article on the family because currently uh, our constitution uh, provides special protection for marital uh, families, families based on marriage. And we know in modern Ireland that there's a lot of families out there that aren't based on, on marriage. There's single parents, there's different forms of, of, of families, and we think all families need to be recognised and given the same constitutional protections as, as any other family. Okay, it's interesting, isn't it, when you read uh, the constitution, uh, in this day and age, and the protection that it uh, affords to women as members of uh, the family. 41.2.1 is the article. In particular, the state recognises that by her life within the home, woman gives to the state a support without which the common good cannot be achieved. Uh, it speaks for itself in a, a lot of ways. Uh, it would be a terrible world if women are, are not in the home. Well, this is it. I mean, uh, on the one hand, it's sort of placing women in the home. um, uh, And, you know, that's obviously uh, affecting the recognition of of women's huge contribution to society uh, outside of home and um, reflects a, a different time when we actually had laws in place that actually prevented women from working outside of the home. There was a requirement that when women got married, for example, they had to quit their jobs. So this is a, a extremely anachronistic language. Um, and secondly, you know, while I think a lot of people have recognised that um, sort of celebrating the work of care is very important um, and, and, and indeed uh, protecting and remunerating um uh, care workers for the for the work they do yeah. is also very important. This this article only celebrates or or protects um, or places, I suppose, women in the home. Whereas, of course, we know um, many men work in the home as well, um, and there are carers who work not just in the home but across society. And this is actually um, something the the Citizens Assembly uh, made a, a significant recommendations on, which yeah. is to kind of overhaul our approach to care workers in our Ireland, um, placing the profession on a, on a professional footing, making sure people are properly paid. Um, and, uh, and of course, this has a, a gender dimension as well, because 98% of, of care workers across society are, yeah, are in fact yeah, women. Yeah. Yeah. And it's the only yeah. hesitancy I think that people have had in terms of removing that article, which would be repugnant to most of us in this day and age. Uh, but uh, instead of just removing it, uh, because you don't mess with the constitution lightly uh, you do it uh, in a very considered way that it would be replaced with something which would recognise the importance of carers rather than women in the home Precisely and I, I think that's that's one of the things that um, we're, we're certainly calling for um, in terms of, of ensuring that care work is recognised and, um, and, and I suppose uh, that, that obstacle to, yeah. to ensuring that, that it is placed on a professional footing, etc., you know, is, 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 is changed. Um, uh, so they're, they're, the, they're the three main calls that we have. Uh, are women uh, equal to men in this country? Um, we're, we're emerging from a time when the, the answer to that question would have been a resounding no. 
mm. um, you know, 50 years ago even. But now, I mean, there there have been significant changes over the last 50 years. Um, but, you know, we, we, we as I said earlier, the, there we had women who had to leave their jobs when they got married in the law. Mm. We also had uh, uh, differ- differences in pay in the law until 1972 when we joined the EU and we were required to bring mm. in laws that protected um, that 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 gave equal pay, but we don't we don't actually have equal pay for it, women yet. It, it's interesting There's when a, you talk. It's interesting when you talk yeah. about the law, Duran, because yeah. you couldn't introduce laws like that, the the civil service bill uh, or whatever it was called, which stopped people mm-hmm. working after they got married, if the constitution prohibited it, and the constitution <laughs> should prohibit it, shouldn't it? Uh, I mean, uh, women should be equal, and they should be equal in uh, the eyes of the constitution. Well, exactly. And, you know, that's why we're saying that our, our article, the, the article on equality needs to be changed to to refer to gender equality and to refer to non-discrimination. And of course, this has benefits for everyone in society uh, because we, we know that, that men can be discriminated against in certain circumstances. But I think, you know, looking at the statistics of women's participation, for example, in public life, there's only 22.5 percent of uh, of the doll which are who are who are women. You know, so that's a significant underrepresentation of women in our highest, you know, political mm. uh, spheres. There's also forty um, percent of companies don't have any women on their leadership board, and we still have a, a, a gender pay gap um, of thirteen percent, which means from about the fourteenth of November every year, women effectively work for free in mm. this country. So there's a significant amount of uh, of work we need to do to change it. And of course, you know, I think in the last few months, everyone's aware of this as well, but we, we must um, also address things like gender-based violence mm. in this country. It still exists. There's kind of shocking statistics. And in fairness, it's across the EU. It's not limited to Ireland, where mm. one in four women experience gender-based violence. So that Do- requires a, a significant overhaul, not just of, of laws and of policies, course. but mm-hmm. behavioural change as well. Of course. Uh, just talk very briefly about the family, would you? Because uh, the uh, article on uh, the family in the Constitution says that the state pledges, pledges itself to guard with special care the institution of marriage on which the family is founded and to protect it against attack. Uh, if you're not married, are you in a family, whether you have children or otherwise? Well, this is the, this is, I mean, you know, obviously today's Ireland recognises that we have all sorts of different shapes and sizes of families. Um, you have plenty of, of couples um, who aren't married. I mean, mm. many people in this country couldn't get married uh, until yeah. the... Until but the, the family is founded on marriage according to the Constitution, so the Constitution is at odds with how we're living. Exactly, exactly. So this is a, this is clearly an article that 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 urgently needs reform. Um, and uh, you know, I, I think it's it's about reflecting modern Ireland in our constitution and ensuring that everybody, no matter you know who they are or how they live, is 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 given the same pr- protections in our constitution as everyone else. Okay, well, you've made uh, these recommendations uh, to the Rockets Committee on Gender Equality. We'll leave it there for the moment, and thank you indeed for joining us on the programme this morning. Thank you, Michael. Duran Ansborough is Head of Legal and Policy with the Irish Council for Civil Liberties. 
Michael Reed on LMFM. Under uh, People Before Profit, a bill brought uh, before the doll yesterday. Ireland would not, if uh, this bill was enacted, ever declare war, and the state would not participate in war or foreign powers war or indeed in any armed conflict overseas. And it would also insert Irish neutrality and a policy of non membership of military alliances into the Constitution. As the Taoiseach has said on a number of occasions in recent weeks, military neutrality does not mean uh, we are politically or morally neutral. Neutrality has never stopped us from participating in world events, uh, nor self-evidently from being affected by them. Nor does it mean that we are inactive in situations where we see flagrant breaches of the UN Charter and clear violations of international law, including international humanitarian law. Addressing Ardal in 1963, John F. Kennedy observed that Ireland pursues an independent course in foreign policy, but it is not neutral between liberty and tyranny, and never will be. To quote Archbishop, Archbishop Desmond Tutu, uh, he says, if you are neutral in situations of injustice, you have chosen the side of the oppressor. And that is the approach we take. For over 60 years, Uh, Not a day has passed uh, when Ireland's peacekeepers were not on duty uh, in blue helmets uh, somewhere across the world. The government uh, rejected uh, the People Before Profit bill. That's the Minister for Foreign Affairs, uh, Simon Coveney, speaking in uh, the House yesterday. Let's speak uh, to People Before Profit's Richard Boyd Barrett, who brought forward uh, this motion. Good morning to you, and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. Is Ireland a neutral country as it stands? Well, we have a traditional policy of neutrality and what is in the Constitution is that Ireland would seek to uh, try and resolve matters of international dispute peacefully, Uh, but it doesn't absolutely guarantee our military neutrality. That is a tradition that's been established going right back to James Connolly and the 1916 rebels and the opposition to the First World War, uh, which helped found this state. Um, so it, it's a tradition, but it's certainly the case that the government have been trying to undermine it consistently uh, and to move us closer to the project of EU militarization and to NATO uh, and to aligning ourselves, particularly with the United States. The, the, probably the most egregious example of that was where we allowed two million troops, US troops, go through Shannon Airport to prosecute the disastrous US-UK-led war in Iraq, where almost a million people uh, died as a result. And uh, so there's been a very concerted effort for many years by Fianna Fáil, Fianna Gael particularly, to undermine that neutrality. And most recently, they have been trying uh, to move us into this project of EU militarization, the creation of the European army and the PESCO arrangement, which aligns the European military uh, project with NATO. Mm. And we believe that is a fundamental breach of neutrality. And so what we're looking for is for the people to decide on this by their, the holding of a referendum. And that's what our bill last night was seeking to do, is to have a referendum where the people could decide whether or not they want to maintain that uh, position of only declaring war where we're actually invaded or attacked ourselves. And other than that, not to be involved in military alliances or in other wars or assisting others in wars. 
Mm. Uh, but is there ever a time for war? I mean, you mentioned James Connolly, who fought a war. Uh, no, James Connolly decided to to initiate a rebellion against the British Empire. Mm. Armed conflict against the British Empire. Uh, yeah, but that was a, 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 an independence struggle against a colonial oppressor. And uh, he, at the same time that he began to move towards the position of rebelling against the colonial oppressor, um, he launched the Neutrality League, arguing, because it, it was in 1914 at the outset of the war, mm. and he argued that the last thing that we should do, the people in Ireland should do, was send troops to support one side in what became the greatest slaughter uh, that humanity had ever seen up to that mm. point. 14 million people died, hundreds of thousands of Irish people died, um, and I think he was proven absolutely right that lining up with those imperial powers was wrong. And I think that analogy still holds today. And where Simon Coveney is being really disingenuous is neutrality is not indifference to the suffering of the oppressed. Precisely why Ireland has a fantastic reputation across the world is because we ourselves established our state in opposition to colonial oppression, in opposition to imperialism. And so uh, our credibility as a neutral state that doesn't align with imperial military alliances is precisely because of that. Uh, so we have huge respect in the Middle East, South America, and across the world because we do not align ourselves with big military alliances. But what Simon Coveney wants us to do is very selectively align ourselves with NATO, with the US and the UK. Uh, and I think that would be a big mistake. And it really, quite frankly, they're exploiting in our view, the desperate crisis in Ukraine, which is a bloody imperialist mm-hmm. invasion, there's mm-hmm. no doubt about it. Putin is a warmonger, he's an imperialist, uh, and I most certainly hope the Ukrainian people will be successful in driving mm-hmm. them out of their country. Should we align ourselves with forces a- against Saudi Arabia because of what it's doing in Yemen? Well, that's the whole point. That is the whole point. And it, there's a stunning silence. The situation in Yemen, and I was involved in a protest at the weekend, for example, mm-hmm. in solidarity with the people in Yemen. And you have absolute silence from NATO, from the European Union, from our own government largely, about the fact that the US, the UK and France, three of the leading members of NATO, have armed Saudi Arabia to the teeth. British and uh, American troops have been involved in actually assisting the Saudi uh, bombing effort in Yemen, which has, over the same period as the war in Crimea and Ukraine, has claimed 377,000 lives, 10,000 children have died, and according to the UN in the last two weeks, there are now 14 million people on the brink of starvation. Mm. And this should, down... should, should we arm Yemen against Saudi Arabia? No, I think we should argue that there should be an arms embargo against Saudi Arabia, that we shouldn't be selling them weapons, mm. that we shouldn't be giving them assistance, and we should be holding to account powers like the US and the UK and France who are arming them. So we, we have to be consistent. If we are rightly saying mm. uh, that... And I guess I was trying to test that consistency because you have been raising Yemen and comparing it to Ukraine. And I, I think to a large degree, rightly so, uh, a loss of life is a, a loss of life. An invasion, incursion is an invasion or an incursion, as uh, the case may be. But is there not at times a time for war? Well, you see, I mean, would, you, would one make that argument, say, to do a Palestine? I mean, the Am- Amnesty International... Well, I think right, so. ...that we should arm the Palestinians. Well, that the Palestinians should resist. 
Well, I certainly think the Palestinians have the right to resist, although they are essentially denied that right, because they are, according to Amnesty and the Human Rights Watch, are subject to crimes against humanity and have been since the establishment of the Israeli Mm. state. That the Um, Irish, James Connolly, and the Irish resisted, that the Ukrainians resist, that the Yemenis resist. No, I think absolutely the people of Yemen, the people of Saudi and the people of Ukraine have the right to resist. But there's there's a totally different thing from saying they have the right to resist to saying that we should align ourselves with NATO and a project of EU militarization and align ourselves with big imperial powers Mm. who are actually deeply implicated in supporting oppressive and tyrannical and despotic regimes. And that's the debate here. Mm. It's not about saying we should be indifferent. As you know, I'm very much involved in Palestinian Mm. solidarity Mm. uh, activity. I've been on the protests at the Russian embassy over Mm. the last few weeks opposing uh, the Russian the Russian invasion of Ukraine, and we've been involved in protesting in solidarity with the people of okay. Yemen, the people of Iraq. But there's a very different thing from saying we should act in solidarity with oppressed people to saying we should then align ourselves with military alliances involving imperial powers, whether those imperial yeah, powers but are but 377,000 people dead in Yemen. Without surrender, you're talking suicide. And that would be the case in Ukraine if there wasn't the support from the West. Uh, I mean, uh, Ukraine in itself couldn't resist the might of the Russian army, could it? Well, to be honest, they've been doing so very effectively. And, uh, you but know, as you say, they're getting all of this weaponry from the West. Well, uh, to be honest, the Ukrainian army was quite well equipped even before uh, they started to receive supplies. And nobody is suggesting that they haven't got the right to try and seek to get weapons wherever they can get them. But it is also worth saying that you know, the Irish independence struggle was not achieved through military assistance from from other imperial powers. It was achieved because the Irish people did not want to be occupied and they waged a war because they were motivated to protect their own country against colonialism and to drive out colonialism. Um, and for that matter, the Palestinians aren't asking for arms from the West. They're simply saying what we would like the West is to acknowledge that we are subject to an illegal occupation, that our human rights are being denied and that we have the right to resist that and that the international community should do what they did with apartheid South Africa, which is initiate a boycott of the apartheid regime in South Africa. That's what the Palestinians are asking for. They're not asking for Mm. weapons. And the people of Yemen aren't asking for weapons. What they are saying is, would the West please stop supporting the Saudi dictatorship? Uh, And then we would have uh, a fair chance uh, to drive them... Uh, and their military intervention out of our country. So uh, the, the argument we're making is, if you want to side with the oppressed, the way to do it is not to align yourselves with big military alliances, whether they're NATO alliances dominated by the US and the UK, who have a bloody history of, of military intervention, or Russia. Uh, that we should not line up with these two armed and imperialist camps, yeah. and we should actually take an independent line. Let's fast forward a little bit if we can, because there's quite a, a possibility, or a, certainly a possibility, that we're going to go further than align ourselves, that we're going to become part of a, a military alliance, a, a European army. Is that where you see things going? I think that's where the government wants us to go, and I think that would be a disastrous mistake. And just because Putin is a bloody warmonger and imperialist doesn't mean that NATO has suddenly become good guys. The people, the, the powers that dominate NATO have a bloody history. Uh, a disastrous war in Iraq, supporting Saudi, bombing in Libya, 
the war in Afghanistan. So absolutely, Putin is a bloody warmonger and we have to hope that the Russian people will take Putin out and we have to really show all the solidarity we can with the Russian people as well as the Ukrainian people who are opposing his war. But that shouldn't mean, as the government are trying to do, that we therefore align ourselves with the NATO military alliance and with military powers like the US and the U. The UK also have that bloody history of imperialism. So I think that's the political question in front of us. Uh, and I think uh, we should hold on to our military neutrality, which means a positive neutrality of opposing empire, opposing militarism, and opposing war, and standing with the oppressed. And by the way, I think it's very important that that is also the way to protect our troops when they are on peacekeeping missions, because the Irish army have huge respect for peacekeeping mm. missions, precisely because they are seen as neutral and as they are seen as coming from a state that established itself in opposition to empire. If we align ourselves with imperial powers, that respect will go overnight. The minister and said that your bill, uh, or, or enshrining a neutrality in the constitution at least, uh, could stop us participating in peacekeeping missions. Do you accept that? No, absolutely not. Uh, it's not meant to do that, and I don't believe, if you look at the wording of it, uh, there's any possibility of that. But what we did say in the debate is if there's concerns about any aspects of the wording, but if the, if the government agree with the general principle, which they don't, and that's the point, but if I think the majority of people in this country do, is that we should be involved in peacekeeping, but not involved in war and military alliances, the wording of that could be sorted out at the committee stage, at the second, you know, the next stage of the doll. And we're very open to amendments. But the point is to secure the principle in the Constitution, if the people decide that that's what they want, but I certainly think that's probably what the majority of people want, is that we maintain that traditional position of military neutrality and non-involvement with military alliances. Okay. Um, and I, I think ultimately the people should have the right to decide, but it's very interesting. I mean, the government are saying, even as recently as last night, after the debate, Leo Varadkar was saying he wanted to get rid of what's known as the triple lock, mm. where we can only deploy troops if there's a UN mandate and if the Dáil agrees to that, and he wants to get rid of that. So the government actually don't want the people to decide. They don't want a national debate, which is what a referendum would give us. Mm. Uh, they just want the right to unilaterally make decisions to involve us with the European military project, which is directly aligned to the NATO military alliance. Okay. We leave there for the moment. Thank you very much, as always, for joining us today. That's Richard Boyd Barrett, People Before Profit TD for Dunleary. Michael Reed on LMFM. Irish hospitals face industrial action, possible strike action in the coming weeks. The Irish Medical Organisation has called an emergency meeting of NCHDs to take place on the 11th of April. The meeting is to address what they call the deteriorating working conditions and flagrant contractual breaches faced by NCHDs on a daily basis. Dr Rachel McNamara is an NCHD a member of the IMO's NCHD committee and she's been telling me a little bit about the work she and other NCHDs do in this country. So an NCHD is um, a doctor and it, it really it's a term that describes a huge range of the doctors that you'd meet and, and they largely um, represent doctors that are working in hospitals and it's a term that relates to um, any doctor from an intern on their very first day in the job right up until the day before they become a consultant. 
So I know it's a weird, mm. um, I suppose, terminology to describe something that we're not. So we're yeah. non-consultant hospital doctors, but, you know, it's a, it's a cohort of seven and a half thousand doctors mm. uh, working in uh, working in Ireland. And, and it's the doctor who most likely will look after you in a hospital. Uh, I think you're quite often referred to as junior doctors and people when they're in hospital they know they're under the care of a, a certain consultant and that consultant has his team and a large group of doctors uh, might go around the wards uh, with the consultant uh, and that generally tends to be the junior doctors or the NCHDs. Is that right? Uh, absolutely and I suppose we, we try to avoid the term junior doctor because you know, a lot of NCHDs are very experienced, and I and until I sign that consultant um, contract, you're you're an NCHD right up until that up until that point. Okay, it's a tough job. It's been a tough job for uh, as long as I can remember. There were many things uh, that were supposed to happen. Uh, to make it more work-friendly for people who are NCHDs. Tell me about your working week and the amount of hours that you would work uh, on a weekly basis when you're rostered. So for me personally, at the moment, I'm on a role that's non-patient-facing for for this calendar year, I suppose, from July to July. But I have been an NCHD working in an Irish hospital for the last five years. And... It does vary hugely from, from job to job, depending on what you're on. But by and large, NCHDs are being routinely asked to work far in excess of legal and safe 14 hours. And they'd be routinely roster shifts that are in excess of 24 hours in a row, um, often working more than 48 hours per week. Um, and I suppose, aside from this being in a breach of the European Working Time Directive, um, it's just hugely um, unsafe for both patients and for doctors themselves and it's you know it's a a really an issue for everyone because everyone will end up being a patient at some point Mm. and you know the Irish the Irish public uh, really deserves you know a doctor that is well rested and able to make the appropriate and and the I suppose decisions and the important decisions that they need uh, as part of their as part of their their health. Yeah, well, absolutely. I mean, it's a very important job, and uh, I'm sure your patients will tell you that more than anybody else uh, because they're relying on, on you and the decisions that you yeah. make uh, to make sure that they're being cared for. Uh, but how do you manage to uh, cope if you have to work for more than twenty four hours? I, I I'm I'm not able to stay awake for twenty four hours in a row. I mean, it's you know, it's it's really hard to describe the levels of tiredness that that you experience and you know you you might you might have a chance to to slip away for you know a 45 minute break or you know put your head down but often you wake up you know completely disorientated and you could be called to a very high high octane scenario and you're just not you know you're not in the right mind frame you're you're in a, in a, a mental state that you would be You'd be hard pressed to focus on a on a Netflix documentary rather than you know these are mm. people's lives we're we're talking about and I mean you're really not in an optimum condition for working when you're when you're working those those amount of hours and that amount of hours in a row especially um, yeah. and that's what this and that's what this campaign is really focusing in on um, is it's trying to make sure that that sort of situation is avoided. Okay, is it legal? So at the moment, 
um, according to the European Working Time Directive, shifts of 24 hours in duration in a row are legal. Um, we are seeing a large, a, a huge amount of cases where people are being asked to work in excess of that, up to 36 hours, 48 hours in a row, which is completely unimaginable. Um, and, you know, in other threat or in other occupations, let's say truck drivers who have very responsible jobs, um, they are forced to take breaks, uninterrupted breaks, every, I believe it's either, uh, I'm not 100% sure, but four, mm. five hours. Uh, but in, in medicine, that's not the case. Yeah, And uh, you may be able to take a break. Uh, you may even be able to find half an hour here or there to lie down and have a, a sleep, but you may not. It's not guaranteed. And I, I think that's the problem when you're working these 24-hour shifts. Exactly. I mean, you know, we've it's, it's so unpredictable and hospitals, as you know, I'm sure your your listeners are aware. And I mean, the over the overcrowding, the constant pressure. Mm. You know, I I have um, I've known myself and I've colleagues who haven't sat down in the 24 hour period, and you know, I'd hear um, of friends of mine have to take a tactical nap. Um, in, in a petrol station on the way home because they don't feel safe driving home after shifts of that length. Mm. And it's it really, it's an unacceptable... Yeah, well, <laughs> not not acceptable to you because it's probably not good for your health, uh, which seems odd to say of such highly qualified uh, doctors. Uh, but uh, when uh, you're not fit to drive, uh, I'm not sure you're fit to make life-saving decisions either. I, I mean... This is it. I'm like, you know, we do it because, you know, you, I suppose you make promises with yourself, you know, I'm I'm going to sleep, I'm going to sleep, but just get through this Mm. next hour. That's sort of the mentality that you're, you're going through and, you know, people and, but it's at a great expense to people's mental health. I mean, sleep is so important for, Mm. um, you know, to maintain that level of, um, I suppose, humanity and, empathy to your work yeah. I mean it, it, there's it, it's so important um, and as you know the results that people are looking elsewhere they're looking abroad uh, for a better work-life balance better conditions and, and that's why we are losing a huge yeah. important cohort um, overseas I'm sure your conditions though are probably better than those who came before you because of the European Working Time Directive I think there was a, a time when doctors work two and three days in a row and hope to get a nap somewhere here and there in between if it was possible. Uh, you said that you can work over 48 hours a week. Again, I take it that comes within the guidelines of uh, the directive. Uh, how long can the working week be for an NCHD? Um, I've, I've heard up to 120 hours. Right. <laughs> um, I mean, it's... There really is no limit to it. No. Um, I, I guess it's, and it, it's to do with, you know, if the, if there aren't enough doctors, I suppose, on the roster to take to take over the role. I mean, somebody will have to be rostered in, <clears throat> and people, you know, they do. People are doing these shifts every day. Yeah. Um, and I suppose people might be um, surprised to hear that 
Yeah. Well, it's three yeah. weeks, three weeks work in seven days type of thing, um, which is yeah. in itself absolutely incredible. Uh, you say there's emigration issues, which is understandable if there's better conditions uh, for people to do the same work elsewhere, probably better pay as well from what we hear. Uh, and uh, you say that it also causes mental health issues. Uh, there's to be a, a meeting on Monday uh, week, isn't it, uh, where you'll be looking at these issues and considering uh, whether to take industrial action, which would be a pretty dramatic move uh, for hospital doctors to be taking in the health service. Absolutely. And I suppose you enter the medical profession to help people. And I mean, that's across the board. And no doctor ever would want to consider going on strike. Um, But at the moment, the way the system is set up and the way, you know, the conditions are, are set, you know, we're not in a position to adequately care for patients trying to work through these conditions. So, I mean, if if it is, if, there, if this situation is about to change, then, you know, maybe no option, but to have to consider uh, something along the line. But, you know, it, it's always a last resort. And, you know, it's just, it's really about highlighting um, this, this issue. And I suppose there, there are so many, uh, crises ongoing at the moment, but this this is this is hugely important, um, and it's in everyone's interest that this is that this is sorted out because it you know you never know when you're going to need mm. these services, and you you need them to be up to par because the, the decisions being made and the treatments being administered are so they're life they're life saving. And the um, services, hospital services, can't be delivered without NCHDs, uh, and you are considering no. the possibility of strike action. So strike action, you know, it's very much the last resort. Um, and it's, you know, it, it's a reflection of how unsustainable the situation is that this has even entered the conversation. Um, but, you know, we, we what we're looking for is very much meaningful engagement from uh, from the HSE and from, from the government to, to look at these issues and just ensure that NCHDs are working safe working hours. And it's you know it's just to, to highlight the importance of the of the situation. Um, so our the campaign is standing up for NCHDs, um, and we are meeting uh, next week to kind of I suppose garner the um, all of the the information that that we need. Um, and but I think it's it's really important to know that it, like it's it's in everyone's interest. This is very much a public interest piece. <clears throat> um, and we're we're really well, all we want to do is is care for our patients and um, and try and maintain some of our maintain our our mental health in the mm. in, in the process. Okay. Well, as you say, uh, the uh, organisation, the IMO, uh, is bringing you together uh, on the 11th, uh, which is uh, Monday week, uh, to consider your options. Uh, and uh, we'll hear more anon, as they say. Dr. McNamara, thank you indeed for speaking to us today. Thank you so much for, for having me on. That's Dr. Rachel McNamara, uh, member of the IMO's NCHD committee, who was speaking to me a little bit earlier on this morning. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. 
Now, the latest increases in energy prices announced yesterday by Electric Ireland are just that, the latest. And we'll see more, no doubt, in time to come. A loan is calling for the government uh, to intervene and protect older people from inflation. Let's speak uh, to its CEO, Sean Moynihan. Good morning to you, Sean, and thanks indeed uh, for joining us. You're looking for uh, a number of specific measures to be put in place. Yeah, look, I suppose all these increases are, are quite shocking in their in their in their in the amount of them, but also they have a context. And the context is that we were disappointed the government didn't live up to its commitments in the last budget, so older people are, are struggling, coming out of COVID, back to backlog of health and well being and, and, and housing issues that older people have. We know that inflation is hitting bread as you know, and other mm. items at around eight percent. The pension is below the poverty line. People are on fixed incomes. And older people, especially those over 75, may have other health issues and live in the cooler, the, the lowest BER rated houses. So we do need specific uh, actions from government rather than a situation that this, this group just can't sort of grin and bear much more. So let's talk through uh, how you suggest government can help people. What do you want done with the state pension? Yeah, well, what we what we like to do with the state pension is is there's a commitment to link the state pension to the average industrial wage at around 35, percent and we we are 20 odd euros below that at the moment, right? And ultimately, is is we need to try and get close that close 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 that gap. You know, we may have to do something a bit like. Um, we've intervened on energy prices. Now, as we come in to the in in in, in into April and May, you know there may be something we need to do with, with, with basic food food items, whether mm-hmm. that's bread, milk, cheese, all these things. Especially, we hope if this some of this is te- temporary. At the end of the day, is, is we can't people just haven't got the ability. We all know we're all going to be hit by this, and we can't insulate everybody in the community. And you're saying give people €25 euro a week, is it? Yeah, mm. we need to introduce something like a €25 euro allowance around food and basic stuff. As I said, the, the basic pension is below the poverty line, and with inflation, people have already cut their cut their cloth. There isn't much left. There, there's not much left for an awful lot of people, an awful lot of uh, slack there. Obviously, around the fuel allowance, we think, you know, it needs to be linked to the actual cost of fuel and reflect that. And the criteria need to be widened to make sure that there's an awful lot more people included in the Mm -hmm. fuel allowance, not just older people. Because we do realise that there's a lot of younger people, low-paid people, people with disabilities, who and those on fixed incomes, young and old, Mm -hmm. who are really going to be affected here. And part of the cost of fuel, part of the reason it is so expensive, or will be even more expensive in May, I think, is the carbon tax. Absolutely. And we have to look what the just transition is there. And we all know, if a lot of people have, been, have pointed out already, is, is the strategy to combat energy poverty is out of date two or three years. And there isn't currently one in, in there. It's been flagged that there's one coming. But we would suggest that that needs to come fairly quickly so that there's some medium term to long term plan as well as short term interventions. OK, it's freezing cold. At the moment, uh, hopefully we'll get a bit of uh, good weather, but uh, you wouldn't want people not turning on their heat. uh, But if you can't afford it, uh, you can't afford it, I suppose. I think people are are basically making really difficult choices. But what we'd say to older people, especially, especially those, you know, 70 plus with underlying health conditions, that heating 
is a public health issue. It's something you do need to prioritise, like food and heating. And, you know, older people are their best owned resources and they've been navigating all this. But the challenge is, they, they, with the amount of increases, they haven't got much left to cut in an awful lot of cases and they're already making really difficult choices. And, and we know... From, you know, I always think about energy prices. It's like death by statistics. You know, there's mm. all these different statistics. But behind those statistics are older people on very on fixed incomes, you know, who ultimately can't afford heating, who are having to cut down on food, who basically, you know, haven't got the amount of money to put petrol in cars, can't socialise anymore. And coming out of the pandemic where they had been so isolated and so cut off, that effect of that on their physical and mental health is something that we need to do something about. Okay, and we'll just mention there's support for people available seven days a week at a number that I'm going to give now, which opens at eight o'clock every morning and closes at eight in the evening. But you can ring 0818 224. That's a loans national support and referral line 0818 224. Sean, thank you very much indeed for talking to us uh, this morning. Thank you. That's Sean Moynihan, uh, the CEO of Alone. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Sadal has been debating the government's response so far to the Ukrainian crisis. The fact is that accommodation available through the existing channels may not meet the level of need if increased numbers of people arrive in the weeks ahead. For this reason, a number of contingency options are in place, including centres such as Mill Street and City West, as well as the use of Gormanstown Camp. Every effort will be made to ensure this type of solution is temporary until more suitable accommodation becomes available. Taoiseach Michal Martin making it clear Gormanstown will be used if necessary. Currently, the vast majority of those being accommodated by the state are being done so in hotels. And to date, we've contracted almost 3,000 hotel rooms across the country. Given the ability of the state to contract hotels at scale and at pace, this has provided the bulk of the initial emergency response. However, there are limits on the ability of hotels to accommodate all those fleeing, given the potential numbers, and measures need to be put in place to respond to this. The government has worked with the Irish Red Cross to put in place a national pledge as the mechanism for challenging, channeling the offers accommodation which many of members of the public wish to provide. 15,000 have arrived so far but all the hotels in the country and the 20,000 offers can't accommodate 100 or 200,000 refugees. 320 tents it seems will become what God knows home to God knows how many Ukrainian women and children uh, and where will they eat? Will they have a TV? Where will they go to the toilet? Will there be security? What protection will there be for so many women and children in tents? or when they get up to go outside during the night to use the loo. This response will get more challenging in the weeks and months ahead. The accommodation available through local authorities, religious organisations, state bodies and pledged accommodation is unlikely to meet the level of need should the higher estimated numbers of people arriving come to pass in the weeks ahead. Current modelling suggests that there is an inevitability to moving into an emergency accommodation phase when pledged and other service supply is exhausted. The only question is how quickly this phase is reached. And Thomas Byrne, a local Fianna Fáil TD, believes uh, that they'll be welcomed by the community in Gormanston. Here's what the Minister for European Affairs had to say. As such, we have put in place a number of contingency options. These include the use of arenas and conference centres, as well as the use of Gormanstown camp. It will not be owned or and it may mean 
camp bed in shared spaces. It's not our first preference. However, I think it is right that we do plan for these contingency op options if they're needed. And again, that we are always in the position to provide safety and provide shelter to those fleeing this war. We have reacted quickly in putting processes in place to welcome Ukrainians coming to Ireland. And we have facilitated through practical means the compassion that the Irish people feel at this difficult time. The Red Cross, of course, has received thousands of pledges from members of the public to accommodate Ukrainian refugees. And as Ukrainians get to know our communities, our schools, our workplaces over the coming period, I know that more strong bonds between Ukrainian people and Irish people will be formed. For years, our country has already benefited from the presence of the existing Ukrainian community here. Of course, since February, Ukrainians have arrived here in dreadful circumstances and for reasons that we fervently wish never had to be. Notwithstanding that, we are looking forward to getting to know the newest members of the Ukrainian community in Ireland. We hope that their time in Ireland will allow them to create fond memories and strong friendships, despite the distress that this situation has brought about. And I think it's important, I would suspect, that uh, the vast majority of Ukrainians don't wish to be here. They want to be home, uh, and they will want to return home and it will be our duty uh, to give them the opportunities here uh, while they're here uh, to end this war as well and to, to rebuild uh, that beautiful country as well uh, to make it fit again uh, for the Ukrainian people. Well, and rebuilding will be a, a big job. Ukrainians will seek refuge here and across Europe because their towns and cities are being reduced to rubble. But sadly, this is not the first time places like and cities in the Ukraine have been reduced to rubble. Indeed, uh, Ukraine was described by uh, a Ukrainian writer, Vasily Grossman, during the Second World War as his country was reduced to fires and tears, full of sadness and of wrath. And he said in a very powerful book which he wrote, Life and Faith, uh, there, is, there is a power on earth which can resurrect huge cities from the ashes, but no power in the world is capable of lifting the light eyelashes over the eyes of a dead child. And I think that we need to learn from our history. And there was a man who wrote of the Nazi occupation of the Ukraine, and indeed of Russia as well at the time, and pointed out clearly, you know, what happens when evil takes over and when good is banished. And I just want to say that the Irish actions, uh, particularly in relation to United Nations, to me, are very powerful and, and very important. And notwithstanding other voices in this House, the fact is that our role in the United Nations, our role in the world, has always been one of peacekeeping and of trying to find solutions. And I commend uh, the Irish and our ambassador in the United Nations, who just happens to be obviously from Drogheda, I have to phrase her, uh, but we're doing a, a, an excellent job there. And I think the leadership that we're showing as a medium-sized country uh, in, in Europe in relation to how we respond to this appalling invasion. Fergus O'Dowd of Fine Gael, uh, the Drogheda native who is Ireland's permanent representative uh, to the United Nations he was referring to is, of course, Geraldine Nason-Byrne. It's hard to find words to describe the horror uh, of the war in Ukraine. Uh, at the moment. And there's no doubt that this shocking invasion uh, has uh, led a strong desire amongst Irish people to help in any way that we can. Um, and I think that's also because of the fact that the history of Ireland and the history of Ukraine have many parallels. 
uh, been lodged right up against um, a big colonial power, um, suffered from enormous and uh, devastating famines because of the decisions of that colonial power, and then aggressive wars being waged against uh, the smaller country by that colonial power too. Um, there's no doubt that we cannot afford to stand idly by, and we should be as active as we can in terms of supporting in a humanitarian sense uh, and also agitating for peace uh, and de-escalation. This is local aim to TD, Patrick Tobin, who is also concerned about uh, the use of tents in Gormanston. People like, you know, I can think of, of church leaders, parish priests and community groups, civil society doing phenomenal work. But I understand from talking to them that the government is actually yet to engage with them. And I, I, I don't think that's right. Um, I think that, you know, do the media briefings and do the media appearances for sure, but do the background work first. Get the, the, the key elements sorted out. Um, my worry is that, you know, we're hearing stories about sex for rent, and I'm delighted that that's been addressed uh, by a bill here uh, in the Dáil. But we need to make sure that there is absolutely no space for a, a exploitation uh, in any space here. That there is accountability right through society with regards what's happening. I have a fear, Minister, uh, that what we're going to see is we're going to see Ukrainians being sent to direct provision centres at some stage in this process. We already know that in my own county in Gormanstown that the, uh, the army is looking at tents currently to deal with the refugee crisis. The last voice we'll hear from from this report is another local TD, Sinn Féin's Rory O'Murku. We are a much smaller Europe than we even uh, were 20, 10, 20, 30 years ago. So therefore, uh, we are very much connected with this. Now, the reality is we need to make sure that we have those parts in play. We know that... Uh, we have only the starting of pieces of work by local authorities. Um, I know this has been coordinated centrally, you know, in relation to your own department minister and, and, and IPAS, but we need to sh- ensure that all communica- communications are done. We know that local authorities are talking about the COVID-type response situation and putting those sort of operations in play. That needs to happen, but this needs to be that on steroids. Look, we could be talking about anywhere. We're very soon going to be dealing with 20,000 Ukrainian refugees. We could be talking anywhere up on 200,000. We know the housing crisis. We know the difficulties we have across the board. And I think once again, at a European level and and at a state level, we have to be very imaginative and we need to look at solutions that will deal with both. And this is one of these cases that has already been taught to us by the pandemic that the state is going to have to do heavy lifting. It's going to have to be facilitated by Europe. And that but that is the only way we can do it. We owe it to those people, but we also owe it to our own people who we have failed over many, many years. And we have to deal with that now. Sinn Féin's Rory O'Muraku finishing off what has been an exceptionally busy programme for us today. If you have been in touch with us, as so many people have, by phone and to text, email, etc., with comments, uh, we'll be coming to those on the programme tomorrow. But as I say, it's been an exceptionally busy programme today uh, and we will make plenty of space for your thoughts and comments on tomorrow's programme. Hope you join us then because uh, that'll be tomorrow morning, God willing, at 9am right here. Here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from nine on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.